Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. And I'm Terrell. And today, we're dangerously likely to go above the fold. So Caleb, I really think this can be an episode where we have a little fun. I know that you just quote unquote graduated and also finished your first year of your master's program. Woo! (laughs) No excitement or anything, right? (laughs) Um, And there's just so much stuff happening and we've been talking offline about how we want to really invest in stories like the critical race theory, um, all of the things that are happening in the Middle East currently, all of the things that are happening domestically. And while those might end up being mini series or smaller, not smaller episodes, but individualized episodes that really hone in on it. I thought that this could be a fun time to let the readers hear how much of nerds we are when we're not on the mic and just send each other stories back and forth. I like that, Terrell. Um, I see you called me out a bit. <laughs> just on, uh, me? Never. I would never do that. I, You know, I, I, I feel like I must say something about this. So, so as any 2020 graduate knows... Um, for the most part, I think in the country, you probably had a uh, virtual graduation, just like me, a year ago, or maybe it was in December. And here at Boise State, they decided to have an extra ceremony for 2020 grads um, in person on the football field, the blue turf, for those of our listeners who don't know anything about Boise State. Blue turf thinking. Hey. And... <laughs> And, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was really nice. I liked it. That's good. I thought it was, um, it was nice to, for me anyways, like not everyone from the class of 2020 showed up and they didn't have to, Yeah. but it was, it was nice for me to be able to, uh, walk across the stage and, and grab my empty diploma book (laughs) or whatever that's called. Isn't that the best part of any graduation when you're like, oh, I did it. And you open up the book to see that there's nothing there because they mail it to you. Weeks after you graduate. Yeah. But it, it was a weird sense of uh, closure. I felt like I didn't really get that last year. And I had a good time. I saw a lot of faces that I hadn't seen in a while. And it was a, it was a really good... There was some good um, uh, feelings and vibes in the air. I love that. I yeah. would not have gone back for my graduation. So I'm very impressed and excited for you. Well, I was here. So I thought, why not? True. But I'm sure there was a lot of other people who thought that way, too. I um, I will be out. I don't know if it'll be on the blue again, but I'll be out there graduating in a year. In a year for the masters, which is pretty cool. Now I just feel old because I graduated in twenty seventeen, and that's already three years, four years to be, actually four years. Anyway, wow, so old. <sighs> we know, crow eyes <laughs> and all. Well, let's go above the fold with some headlines. All right. Last week, a U.S. fuel pipeline that supplies up to 45% of the East Coast fuel was the victim of a ransomware cyber attack. And as of now, which is Tuesday, um, (laughs) it is still shut down as the federal government and the company behind it, Colonial, tried to make sense of the situation. So for those that don't know, a ransomware attack is when the attacker locks you out of your computer until you pay them a fee uh, or a ransom. This can apply to uh, getting locked out from a network as well. So that's what happened to this company. 
And the FBI has recently confirmed that the attacker was the criminal group uh, called Darkseid, which originates from Russia. Darkseid, though, claimed that the attack was only meant to make money and was not carried out by a foreign government. There's not many details. Uh, we don't know a ton of what has happened here. We just know that this attack uh, was carried out by a group that originated in Russia. They say that they wasn't on behalf of the Russian government. That's something that if we do know, the public does not yet. And the pipeline as of now is still shut down as the company tries to figure out its uh, what what the hackers got and reset all the systems and whatnot. Mm. And it's already starting to cause some fuel shortages. So Terrell, my question for you, um, this has also been kind of another uh, uh, conversation starter when it comes to the rising concerns of America's cybersecurity infrastructure. Mm. What do you think that this attack says about that? Well, one, if we fix this, does this mean I'll stop having to pay $3 at the gas station? <laughs> well, I don't think it affects Idaho. <laughs> I also don't think that's how the whole oil industry works. But um, it's concerning, right? I I need to be careful here. I started rewatching Scandal, so I have to make sure I don't confuse like realistic things that have happened with the fictional world of Shonda Rhimes. Um, <laughs> like... Air Force Two was never hijacked, right? Um, but it's concerning. We we never fully... How do I word this? So I was one of the nerds who read through the entire Mueller report and understood that there were... The entire thing? The entire thing. Wasn't it like... 400 and, 435 or 440 some pages? Yeah. That's I impressive. Booked, I bookmarked a couple pages because they were interesting. Wow. Um. Uh, but the report did a really great job to speak to the threats that we as a a country have from a cybersecurity perspective. And even though I got polarized, um, I can't help but outlook or um, but look at there were some genuine concerns around the depth in which the Kremlin had hacked into specific state um, voter rolls, how much information they were able to collect, and, and, and. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an issue that we as a country experienced, but never fully processed. Uh, there, there have been a couple of TikToks about how the country came together after 9-11, and there was a growing sense of pride and Americanism and patriotism. And how that capitalized to men and women fighting in the longest wars in American history. We were attacked again. It, it might not have cost lives, but it, it did have a lasting impact on our democracy. And I don't think we were able, we were ever able to process and move forward. And then with this story specifically, you see how those implications can then play out into other spaces and other spectrums. Um, where I don't, I don't know how to feel because I don't know if anyone's actually listening. I think that my concerns with this whole situation kind of echoed that of everybody else, experts and, and just people who follow this stuff, their concerns as well, that we just don't have a super strong cybersecurity infrastructure mm -hmm. in the U.S. 
I'm there's like there, there was this report not that long ago that I was reading about and it's really fascinating cyber attacks and whatnot and how this how this stuff works but um I think it was like the FBI or some of our national security agencies came out with this report that said that that our energy grid is really vulnerable and they also believe that Russian hackers have been in it for years not necessarily to strike but to be there if they needed to and we know this and we actually carried out cyber security attacks or cyber security attacks cyber attacks and Mm. are in Russia's power grid too but the multiple countries exactly but and we kind of brought this upon ourselves when we decided to uh, attack Iran this way a long time ago. Mm-hmm. What, over a decade now? Um, I think my concern about this is, and I'm not like any expert on this, but it just feels so easy for hackers to hack anything they want in the U.S. And we're coming off of solar winds where like a bunch of federal agencies got hacked and we still don't know the fallout from it. Yeah. We still don't know it. Even if we carried out our own attacks that we don't hear about, like that doesn't change the fact that that Russia, who seems to be the perpetrator of these attacks, um, what what information did they steal and how are they going to use it? We don't know. Or maybe we do, but the public doesn't know what we know, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I It just feels like it's like these tit-for-tat kind of strategies but it doesn't feel like our infrastructure has gotten any better at preventing this kind of stuff from happening. And I don't know if it, it like, I don't think you could ever promise 100% security, but it, it feels like this kind of energy fuel attack, like should have been able to be prevented. That's mm-hmm. what it feels like. Um, and I think that's kind of where my concern with all of this is. It's a little scary knowing that nothing is safe. Anything can be hacked. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like we're doing much about it. I, I think you you set the stage super well for um, like civilian versus governmental and military. Um, of there, I'm I'm sure I'm I'm I won't say certain, but I'll go as high as ninety eight percent positive that there are people and there are things that are being done to mitigate and limit those actions. Right. I'm and sure there us is. As civilians don't know everything, but I do agree that there's a there's a bit of unease that we know the depth and ease for things like that to happen. And right now, even um, there are panels, committees in the Senate that are voting on election bills to make our elections safer and a specific party that claims to want to protect elections and promote security is purposefully stopping that bill from even making it to the floor. So there is a, a bit of fear there of here's a great example of um, cybersecurity in our, our legislative process mm-hmm. being railroaded by a specific party yeah. in the minority. If you haven't figured out who I'm talking about yet, the conservative party, it's the QOP. <laughs> um, that are are making it easier for these types of things to continue happening. And we then look at it and, and speak to our energy grid and where our energy system is. The administration has brought out this amazing plan of brown infrastructure, and it's being said that it's too big, where it does focus on and talk about 
our infrastructure needs to be brought into the 21st century. It's still stuck in the 1960s, right? So yes and no, I guess is where I'm at of, I feel that fear, but I also have belief and hope that there are people somewhere who are doing the things that I just don't get to know about because my clearance level is non-existent. <laughs> Same. And, and don't get me wrong. I, I have hope that we have the right people in positions um, that are preventing this and doing something about it. It just on the surface level of what we get to see, it doesn't feel like um, besides agencies doing their job, it doesn't feel like Congress is really paying that much attention to it. Like I hate being like finding out that we got hacked in this incredulously I, I I might even add the word embarrassing to it um, in an embarrassing way. We get hacked and we hear about it. And then we don't even hear about the U.S. Um, attacking back, even though we do most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I hate the idea that we hear about getting hacked and then we attack back and then we get hacked again and then we attack back. Like, it's a cycle. Can, I, I, there's probably a lot of stuff we do prevent, but like us not knowing exactly all the stuff that happens just it makes it feel like we're just getting hacked and then we're hacking somebody and it feels like nothing is safe because of that i think to to close or to to really just sum up where we are speaking on the um elections bill and some issues that it's having in the senate um the senate minority leader is quoted saying Our democracy is not in crisis, and we're not going to let one party take over our democracy under the false pretense of saving it. I think that sums up very well that, per usual, we we can have this kind of conversation and speak to the real genuine fears that this country should have when it comes to cybersecurity and and cyber warfare, if we're being transparent. Um, But the real true politicalization of this issue for brownie points or just to continue to put up this false narrative that a country, and this might get me canceled, I say this every time on the pod, um, a country that was once great is still great. Ooh, canceled. (laughs) And you say that every time I say I'm going to get canceled. (laughs) Keeping on the energy beat, today, some really exciting news out of the Biden administration, specifically the Department of Interior, has moved forward in approving the nation's first large-scale offshore wind farm. Um, Per the Washington Post, today, on Tuesday, a project that's envisioned to build 62 turbines off of Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts um, that could power up to 400,000 homes was improved by the Department of Interior looking to really start to shift, as we've been speaking, mm-hmm. our infrastructure into the 21st century. Um, something noteworthy is the Interior Secretary mentioned that she believes that clean energy is the future, and it's within the grasp of the United States. Um, this is a significant milestone in our effort to build a clean and more equitable energy future with addressing the climate emergency, as the secretary went on to say. So my question for you, Caleb, are we starting to see the seeds planted for the type of energy overhaul that we were just speaking about? And is this a sign of more to come or is this uh, a diamond in the rut, if you will? 
I think this is a sign of more to come. And I have a few things I want to say about this. I'm, this is really exciting. I know some people out there are going to be like, uh, eyesore, uh, windmills, uh, but like, this is a really big deal. Um, renewable energy and all that, of course. Um, but also like in Terrell, I might have to clarify is this, um, they approved a wind farm project, um, on the coast outside of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Was this, this isn't a government project though. Is this a private company project? Private company. You are correct. So this is my, this is the point that I want to make is like, of course, I think my belief systems hold that government is in a unique position to change how we think about the world and climate and the environment and Mm -hmm. ecology and everything that comes with it um, and animals and whatnot. And, and so, yes, the infrastructure bill and everything about climate, it needs to happen. It needs to happen in Congress. I'm actually confident it, it will happen. I think it could. Um, whether that's another reconciliation or part of it is, or I don't know. Uh, we can get into the politics about that when it comes time. Mm-hmm. But but everybody also has to remember that like there are private companies that are doing this too. So the fact that the Biden administration is approving these really green, non-renewable, clean energy resource projects. Um, and even though private companies are doing them, I think more more and more will get approved that probably wouldn't have been approved under Trump. And while we do need government to take advantage of their unique position to drive real change on this, um, change can still happen, albeit slower, mm. more slowly, but... <laughs> Um, I don't think that was a word, but, um, the fact that we have an administration that, that is taking this seriously and allowing companies to, to, to create clean energy resources, um, in places that in this country historically haven't been used, uh, like the coasts or water or yeah. whatnot is a really big deal. And I think more is to come at least from the private sector. I am still very hopeful for um, some climate plans through Congress, but but there are there is something good about um, companies doing this too, and noteworthy too. Uh, uh, we talked about this in a previous pod, but this administration is really making a concerted effort to speak about equity and to speak about environmental reforms from a jobs perspective. And the Vineyard Wind Project, which is the project we're speaking on, is looking at a potential of um, 3,600 jobs for Americans showing that it does have an economic impact and it can do a lot of greatness uh, for the American workforce, especially after the weak jobs numbers we just saw a couple weeks ago and the starting this feeling that while a lot of economists were coming out and saying that America was on the path of overheating, we're seeing that it's it's more of a lukewarming um, so having things like this and having spaces in place to do things like this can really help and support the the overall effort to be better for the country and for the globe, but also make impacts that will bring lasting and impactful jobs for Americans. Well, Terrell, you did kind of bring politics into it, or maybe I did. Who knows? Yeah, both of us. Uh, but let's let's kind of change gears to uh, politics. Stay on that line for a second. In our next story, Facebook and their oversight board and the decision that it made about uh, the former President Trump, um, whether he can still be on Facebook or banned. So 
banned as in like banned him completely or yeah from facebook yeah so so as everyone probably remembers after uh trump decided to incite an insurrection over the big lie about the election being stolen um down at the capitol on january 6th uh twitter facebook um um other social media companies banned him from their services which they can do so facebook um Banned him, but temporarily was their call. And they have an oversight board um, that is kind of supposed to review policy decisions that Facebook makes and then kind of decide whether or not uh, uh, the decision that Facebook makes is lives by the policies that they have. Mark Zuckerberg actually calls this uh, like his Supreme Court, um, which is a lot to unpack by itself. And we should probably talk about this um, as this this situation will come up again. Um, so when they banned Trump, um, this went to the oversight board. And the oversight board came out with a decision uh, last week about whether or not Trump should still be banned or not. And what they said is, is Facebook, you don't have an actual policy for this. Um, so they threw the ball back into Mark Zuckerberg's lap and said come back in six months with a policy that we can actually decide your decision based off of. And in the meantime, Trump will still be banned, at least for uh, those six months that um, we'll wait for you to get back to us. So I've already talked about it a little bit. I'm a little bit um, concerned that Facebook has their own rendition of a Supreme Court and it's making big kind I would argue public decisions mm-hmm. um <laughs> that are really influential and I think it just kind of goes to show that uh I think it's time for US antitrust laws to be used. <laughs> US antitrust laws what are these words that you're saying? I look I I have no problem with businesses being successful but Facebook is so big that they need their own Supreme Court. This shouldn't really be a decision that's that Facebook gets to make. I just I don't like how normalized it feels either. But they're a private company. They're a private company, but you click to agree. They gave you the option to not agree to a lot of their terms and conditions, which brings up another point that I really think we should dive into as well of um as a private company, you have Apple currently going against Facebook in a lot of these regards, arguing that they're taking too much of people's private information. Their terms and conditions are so convoluted that they are um, essentially tricking people into giving away stuff for free and now mm-hmm. the company can make money. Is it an antitrust issue or do we need um, um, an FDA? Not FDA, let's... FCC, uh, yeah, I know that actually does its job. Actual, actual regulation. Yes, like, like I think what I mean by antitrust is Facebook has bought in so many companies, and it's so big that it has this outsized influence on decisions that I really don't think should come down to Facebook. And so, what I mean by antitrust is, I think there needs to be regulation, and I think it does probably need to be broken up. That's a different conversation. Yes. And like, then you start talking about Facebook. No, I mean, not Facebook. You start talking about Google. All of them and do. And then you start like... But all of them do. We've done this before. I know. at and one of them we did it to. And then we moved right back and still let them buy a Sprint. 
I know. Well, now they're back to where later. they were. It just doesn't make sense. Disney is another great example of a, a conglomerate that just owns too much. And I don't disagree. I just... I don't have a problem with companies being successful and buying things up that are good for their business. But at some point, you get so big that you're kind of a monopoly. And Facebook is in the social media world. Yes. But also, how do you... I think... My challenge here is how do you retroactively finally live up to those principles, right? And I, I'm sure there's some history buffs listening to this right now that are saying America used to not have antitrust laws. And then all of a sudden, one president came in, put them in place, and everything kind of got broken up and scattered, which some argue anyway. My concern is because we've allowed for this rampant and um, unregulated capitalist structure what does it look like when those companies start breaking up again and become smaller and and in the landscape that they built right of how do they then succeed how how does the american lifestyle change because of these movements are there are there potential downfalls and pitfalls that we're walking into that we aren't thinking about aren't prepared for i mean i think i think you give a good point there, but I think that if you're going to break up massive social media companies or really one massive social media company, I think then there's opportunity for maybe more of a future and vision of what social media can be. And that's different from what it is now. Maybe there's downfalls. I'm having a hard time seeing any at this moment in time. Because you're not splitting up Facebook to the extent that it's not a big company still, but you're splitting them up that they're not a monopoly. Yes, but the issue that you run into it's just more is, competition is patents and trademarks. So Instagram, great example. But we have laws for this. Instagram gets pulling from um, Facebook. Mm-hmm. And this is where I get a little into the tech space where I'm not always perfect. But Instagram gets pulling. There are codes that Instagram now has that come from Facebook that Facebook can then launch and say, you can't operate on this principle anymore. You can't use this certain code language because it's patented through Facebook. Um, And then you run into the issue of, does that then do more hindrance to the social media conglomerate that operated on its own, bought out, went into this major major organization? Or um, is it really going to spur more competition? Because I think... I think my stress here and my, my challenge is um, you have these organizations finally breaking up and, and being back to where they should have always been. But because of, again, the unregulation that we've had for capitalism, you have Facebook and Google and all of these spaces saying, well, we patent this specific code language that we know will cripple that competitor moving forward. We'll let them go and we'll, we'll agree to break up. But because we own and and have put a trademark on these specific languages, um, we know for a fact that they can't function without us anymore. Yeah, but I think that's just a way for a company to keep its monopoly. I think it's a disingenuous argument, to be honest. Look, I don't think I don't think you go, hey, Facebook, we're going to break you up and then not break anybody else up. And then everybody like eats Facebook. Like, I don't think that's what we do. I think it's kind of fun to watch, honestly. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, Mark Zuckerberg getting eaten by all the sharks. Look, I, <laughs> I think something. 
I'm not an expert on this by any means. I don't even know the laws very well, but, <laughs> but it feels like it just doesn't really sit well with me that Facebook has its own, what they call their own Supreme court that weren't chosen by people, but making these big influential decisions that affect a lot of people. <laughs> and I, I'm just not a hundred percent sure how I feel about that. And you know, I think there's people in the Senate that I do trust to figure out a good solution about all of this. Like, Specifically Elizabeth Warren. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> Took it right out of my mouth. <laughs> um, but we'll see what happens, you know. Um, it's kind of interesting. Even Republicans are like, let's break up Facebook because they upheld the ban. <laughs> Which is so, so dumb. Stupid. So absolutely dumb. But I, I do I do want, before we move on to the next topic, I do want to get your reaction to the oversight board's um, decision. I agree with it. I mean, I'm biased, obviously. I, I think that Donald Trump poses a much bigger threat than people gave him credit for. And the the ability for him to use his platform um was awful it led to an insurrection it it has led to millions of americans not believing that the actual duly elected president is the president so at a certain point the companies need to take onus that them giving him that platform was doing them more harm than good right Mm -hmm. Um, I'm still shocked that they finally came to that point, um, especially after the vice president during the primary called on Facebook and Twitter to disavow the president at that point in time because of his rhetoric. Um, but I agree with it. And I, I think I counter to you appreciate the fact that it came from some type of board rather than just a corporate executive decision of, oh, yeah, we're we're just going to let that go. I think my issue with it is it's not separate from the company. It is the company. Yes. So it doesn't feel like... It's the same as an ethics board with... You can think about ethics boards. You can think ethics board anywhere. Ethics board at law firms, ethics boards, um, literally anywhere. That's fair. Yeah, and I think another point to make here is like, I'm glad that Trump isn't on social media because I echo all of your words with that, but... Um, I wonder, like, like it, it, just because he's kind of like out of sight, like we don't see him on social media every day, like doesn't mean like the damage has already been done. And it feels like the, the Republican party has gotten only worse mm -hmm. since then. And a lot of the stuff that we see on social media, that is crazy far-right things are still happening because all the people who believed in Trump and believe in that are still pushing all those messages forward. Yeah. So I'm glad he's off, but I don't think that, I mean, I, I think that's just like a tiny bit of maybe the solution to the problem. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I, I think, I think that, this is an inherent issue with social media outlets specifically of what does it mean to have a vacuum where people can say whatever. Um, and finally, there have been questions about that limit that hopefully can be dived in and thought about a little bit more. My fear is you have the Republican Party, right, who's saying, oh, well, um, because they are they're doing this, they're 
overextending their ability. So we want to find ways to harm them when mm-hmm. actually they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Keeping it on the political beat for a little bit. Um, there's a lot again happening all over and <laughs> I, I could dive into some really interesting stories and things that we've been discussing. Um, we can stay in America. We can go over to the UK, but I mentioned a little bit in our conversation about um, cybersecurity that the Senate is currently looking at and diving into um, the first bill of its session focused on election security. And there is a legitimate war that has begun between the two parties around um, how it should be passed, how many amendments there are. What are the focuses and keys and, 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 and to an update right now because of the governing agreement that both Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell agreed upon, most of these committees are sitting at a um, 50-50 split. Um, so as they got ready for a key procedural vote, you saw that it fell on party lines and nine Democrats and nine Republicans um voted in opposite means. But it's hard to ignore how important this is, specifically after the conversation we just had around cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. Specifically after watching three states pass some very harmful and potentially damaging election laws in the last few weeks. My question for you, Caleb, and we've talked about this a few times, how how important is this? How how far does a Chuck Schumer, um, the Senate Rules Committee, how how far do they need to go to get this to the floor and get this bill passed? Is it is it the bill to end all bills, or is this one that they might have to take a knee at the one yard line and just own? We were close. We have the language. It needs to be brought up at a better time. I don't know how to say how high the stakes are to get this bill passed. I don't think we have the option of kneeling down at the one yard line. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's an option. I don't know how they're going to do it without getting rid of the filibuster. I'll be honest. And Although I have come more around to getting rid of it, I'm still a little shaky on it as well. Um, I just, we see these, there's been 11 states now that have enacted some terrible, um, terrible, terrible uh, 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 voter bills um, to disenfranchise voters, mostly Mm -hmm. voters of color. in Texas, they were evoking words from Jim Crow, from the Jim Crow era. And when that w- when they were told <laughs> that they were, they just batted it off like they had no idea. Mm-hmm. But they know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. This is literally a fight for democracy. And... The sad state of American politics is it's not just about disagreements about policy anymore. It's quite literally about democracy. 
most of the stuff that Democrats are doing has broad support across party lines Mm -hmm. all across the country. And Republicans, remember, don't even have a policy agenda. It's a fight for democracy now. And I just, we can't, we can't, there's just no option in which we, we give up on this bill. There's no option. I don't disagree. I mean, I, I used this quote earlier, but you have the minority leader saying that our democracy isn't in crisis when it can't be ignored. Because um, he knows he's going to win next round if we don't do something. But for him specifically, he doesn't know that because Kentucky started to do its purple move again. But I digress from that. I, I can't. Words are hard in this space. Um, they are. I, this situation, I feel like I feel like we're removed from it. Mm. It's important, but I feel like I've been focused on other things in my personal life, so I haven't put as much attention to it. But I don't know how to state how like important this is for not just like like making it easier for people to vote, but for the country as a whole, for democracy itself. Yeah, and I I think I struggle for words because there was a safeguard for this and the Supreme Court ruled that that safeguard was so antiquated that Congress needed to do something to update, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And now we're at a space where Congress is finally stepping in to do its role. And it's showing exactly what was said during the oral arguments at the Supreme Court of why this law, why that law, why the Voting Rights Act needed its teeth because All it takes is that minority party that wants to keep us in a Jim Crow type era to withhold and stop those type of of, um, progresses from happening. And we're we're literally watching it happen. And it it touches a lot that this bill is named after John Lewis. It, It touches a lot that you have Americans in this country right now who remember being hosed down and chased by hounds just so that they could vote. There are people in this country who remember not being to marry someone from the opposite race. There are people in this country who remember what it's like to genuinely be questioned about their own Americanism just because of the the color of their skin. And then you have the example that you use, the Texas lawmaker saying that they're trying to purify the um, voting system and acting confused when another Texas lawmaker questions him and challenges him that that very language was used to do all of the things that resulted in the Supreme or the, the Voting Rights Act that had them unable to make their own voting rules for generations. Um, so as I ramble, unfortunately, I, I agree. And it is so important, but how do you convince a party that knows if more people are able to vote, they're going to see what happened at this last election? They're going to see states that they thought they could hold on to slip away because their policies aren't there. How do you convince a a political system to fix itself 
when it knows that it's going to harm the po- the politics of that very system. I think you do it by winning. And before you say, well, we won this election. and they didn't oh, No, we didn't win this election. We got the White House, <laughs> but we did not win this election by any regard. I, I think that you just have to continue to beat them. To win, to win, to win until they're beaten into submission. And that'll take years and many election cycles to do. Because uh, this party is actually insane. And I'm not talking about conservative values and policy. It's okay if you hold those beliefs. I'm talking about where the Republican Party is at now. And it's in a completely different spot than than that, than policy. Um, and unfortunately for Democrats, um, the way to win is... The way to win is the right thing to do for them. The right thing to do is to make it easier for people to vote. And that inevitably is a disadvantage to uh, 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 the Republican Party. So it's easy for the Republicans to go out and say, it's a power grab. It's a power grab. Um, When the right thing to do actually helps one party. But if you keep beating them, at some point, the Republican Party has to learn that the way it's doing things is completely wrong. And they're going to keep losing unless they are forced to change. And they'll be forced to change if we just keep winning and gaining more seats. But we're not going to do that if they have an advantage with the Electoral College, if they have an advantage with with gerrymandering, which they do. And the way to solve that is this elections bill. Going along the lines of, of politics, well, I guess... Um, parties that need to just give up sorry <laughs> Benjamin Netanyahu uh, we're going to switch gears to Israel uh, as you may have heard in Israel uh, police raided an Islamic holy site in Jerusalem which sparked a broader conflict of airstrikes and rocket attacks from Israel and Hamas which is labeled as a terrorist organization by the US and its allies this situation is ongoing and as of now 30 Palestinians have died including 10 children and 203 others were wounded, according to the New York Times. In Israel, uh, three people have been killed and 100 were wounded. Um, So far, both sides are not backing down, even though the U.S., United Nations, Egypt, and Qatar have all called on both sides to work towards a ceasefire. Obviously, what's happening is terrible. It's horrible. Um, The last time we saw this kind of violence between the two... um, groups uh, was in 2014 and over the last few weeks um, the expected uh, eviction of Palestinian residents in um, East Jerusalem one of the neighborhoods that Israel is forcing has contributed to this rise of tensions um, and to all violence in which it is now uh, there's been people on both sides who have been killed as from rocket attacks and whatnot as I already said um, but Terrell uh, this is an ongoing story, and this is what we know as of now, which is Tuesday. Um, a lot more could happen um, by the time uh, that the re- that the listeners, I almost said readers, that the listeners are um, going to hear this, uh, and it's evolving by the hour. But I just wanted to get your to your reaction to what has already happened. Every eight years, eight to nine. Yeah, I I think to the Obama administration. Um, the first time I actually invested in and started learning more 
about Israeli politics and and policies regarding them. Um, it was actually, I think, maybe two weeks before Hillary Clinton announced that she was going to run for president. I only remember this because it was the only thing that stopped the wall-to-wall coverage of what the Iron Iron Dome was, what the Gaza Strip is, who mm-hmm. Hamas is, all of those things. I, I vividly remember um, being in college and, and seeing it on CNN, and it was a constant thing. This is also when the Malaysian fight was disappeared. Anyway, um, and it's it's awful. Like, I... I remember then, and I have the same conversations now, where my my mother even would say, they've been fighting all my life. I don't know what it's like for that region to not be at war with itself. Um, Yeah. And the amount, I think, for me, it's it's the amount to which we are desensitized to it, but also the way that our media outlets have an inherent bias in this argument, but also play it up as if even though this happens frequently as I mentioned it plays it up as if this is a one-off issue not bringing in the context of the ongoing um, annexation of settlements by Israel to displace and and dehouse Palestinians across their land um, it it doesn't give onus to or explanation to, just as you mentioned in the story, um, the detention of individuals at this holy site and the feeling that this holy site is being taken from a group of people that it it was originally meant to um, have, as that mm-hmm. used to be that area used to be owned by the Palestinians um, in their original land um, charter. So I just. I struggle a lot here because I recognize that there is a lot of um, propaganda and bias that are being played into this. I also understand that there is a genuine discomfort speaking on this topic because of the way that we've, one, viewed the Israeli state, but also created it. And I, I think back to what, a year and a half ago now, um, when the former administration struck the greatest peace deal of all time and um, that individual was looking to receive a Nobel Peace Prize. And, and here we are, because this is not just a, an open shut case. This is not an issue that can be fixed in one core time because there's so much context that we as Americans are being taught to leave out. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. It's what's difficult about talking about um, Israel and the, the Palestinian conflict and whatnot is that half one side, one side of our political spectrum. If you even so much as say one bad thing about Israel, it means you're an anti-Semite, and that's not true. You can criticize policies and some of the actions that Israel takes. Um, just like you can any other country. Yeah, without without being anti-Semitic. Um, and I'm not saying that there isn't isn't problems with both sides on this one. And obviously I'm not an expert here. But it just I I I will just say this. I have to wonder if if 
this time might be a little different. And all I mean by that is Israel's political future is still uncertain and it has been for four or five years. And I wonder, I wonder if this kind of conflict will drive Israel to um, a, a united government in, I don't know if it'll be the same way or if it'll be a different way than before. And that's all, that's all I'm curious about. Uh, my heart goes out to everyone who uh, hasn't made it through this. Absolutely. I, yeah, I, I think. And affected as well. I think your piece on the, the political side is extremely critical as well, right? Of um, current slash former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu hedged his reelection on increasing the amount of settlements Israel would take. And we're one seeing the ramifications of that action, and was enabled by the U.S. under Trump. Hundred um, percent. We're seeing the ramifications of that action, right? Not only in his inability to create a coalition and actually build a government, even with a more radical um, party mm-hmm. joining in, but also you're seeing the implications that that type of tyranny can have on and further exacerbate issues um, and cause these type of ramifications and and fighting that we're seeing that I, like you mentioned, my heart goes out and I think it'll be very interesting to see where the Israeli people, um, move towards but also if this does give the um, Palestinian Palestinian if this does give the Israeli government an opportunity to coalesce around some semblance of um, peace and and direction rather than the alternative of radicalization and anger Take us on a tangent, Caleb. All right, Terrell. So something that I just think is absolutely hilarious is kind of goes back to our conversation earlier about Facebook upholding, for now, the ban for Trump. Uh-oh. And, um, you know, the Trump Trump and his, I don't even know, his like... Cronies. From the desk. Yeah, cronies is a good word. From the desk of Trump. Ugh, disgusting. Um, and I, I don't like to really bring him up. He doesn't need to be talked spoken of or talked about but i just found this a little funny a little amusing um they've been talking about uh coming up with their new like communications platform you know like a social media platform whatnot and then trump like what like maybe a week ago released (laughs) what it is and it's a it's a blog and it looks like it's from like the 90s (laughs) yeah i saw that i saw that and I just think that's hilarious. <laughs> I think that's so funny. I hope I hope when Terrell and I potentially uh, release a blog that y'all will listen or read ours. I hope we get more readers than Trump does. What the plan for Trump is like his supporters will will copy some of the words that he has in his blog and post it on social media. Like it's a joke. It's just do a better job than Melania did copying Michelle Obama's entire speech and just re-giving it. So fair. 
<laughs> Fair enough. That's look, look, I just, oh my God. I just think it's so funny that he thinks a blog is like as good as like any other social media. Just so silly. Bring back MySpace. <laughs> Anyways, um, take us on a tangent trail. <laughs> um, my tangent's also going to be silly, but also like concerning. Um, I know we had talked about this a little bit. Like food's been on my mind a lot lately and <laughs> there's been this rise. Well, it won't be a rise. It hasn't been a rise. It's been there forever. Like TikTok and all. Um, I'm trying to think of how to word this. I don't want to say like white women stop cooking, but like white women stop cooking. Um, if I have to see another countertop have sauce, nacho cheese. Wait a second, Terrell. What are you talking about? Just. <laughs> I can't put into words the amount of unseasoned disrespect I've seen on social media of food hacks where that they was in quotes dump out sauces onto a a marble uh, fake marble because let's be real they can't afford the real thing but a, a fake marble countertop and then they like use their hands to do stuff like spaghetti can go in the pot with the sauce and mix it how do i know this because i literally made spaghetti i literally made spaghetti yeah so a week ago the so the trend is 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 <laughs> like so the the trend is that's these younger I don't know, probably 30s, what, white woman? Yeah. And they're like, let's take our spaghetti sauce, and it's a food hack. That's in quotations. Because you're feeding a pack of <laughs> fucking rats? Like, and they just dump out, they first dump out the spaghetti sauce on their white marble countertop. But we also need meatballs. And then <laughs> pour the meatballs on one and strip Parmesan of it. And Parmesan cheese, because you know we really like cheese in our spaghetti. So you Parmesan. dump out an entire bottle of Parmesan cheese? Yeah, on it, and then it's the noodles on the other end, and then that like, you pick out with your hands, and then they just mix it together and on the countertop. It's just so, it's so disrespectful. I just unseasoned. I go in a state of shock every time I watch it. He does actually. I've watched it each time because because just it's easier to mix it in a fucking bowl. <laughs> but there's no like there's no seasoning. You just you emptied the sauce right from the container. Yeah, the meatballs look drier than the Sahara Desert or my text message. I don't even really care about the food. Don't do it on the fucking countertop. I mean, Use yes, a fucking bowl. Yes. But but I bring that up too because so you have people who are like, here's a super cool pasta trick that I learned, and they pour a bunch of uncooked pasta noodles into a baking pan. They add milk. They put blocks of cheese in, what? and then they just stick it in the oven. <laughs> And pull it out and mix it together and then eat it. And they're like, mm, this is so... Like, no, it's not. It's not good. White people, it's, stop. It's stop so it. frustrating. I'm white and it hurts. And, <laughs> like, we we just talked about this, right? Like, one of the reasons I think it started to frustrate me more is I've had a... a not had. I've talked about this to many a people. But there's been a realization of, like, food and the impact that it's had over a long period of time like african-american folk we have soul food because 
when we were slaves, we were given the worst of the worst. We we learned how to season and cook and, and do the things to make things edible because we wanted to nourish ourselves and our families. And we weren't given the cream of the crop stuff. Like I don't like chitlins by any means. The smell alone is a reason enough not to eat it. But chitlins exist because they were pig intestines and white folk didn't want to eat them on the plantation. So they gave them to their slaves to fight over. And then to watch these people, and I know they don't have any malice in it, blah, 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 blah. But to watch these people just with no regard of how to cook (laughs) or like any semblance of how just disgusting what they're doing is to do that. It just it calls back to me the. The real truth that we experience very different walks of life. There's very different places. I make grits, which are not the best grain to cook with because I grew up on it, because my family grew up on it, because it was a grain that slave owners didn't want to deal with. It It's so frustrating. And I, I bring this up, too, because you don't see black people doing this. No, no black people use bowls like Caleb said. Black people season things. Black people don't stick their hands into the pasta yes. and throw it on the countertop. I love I love that they use mm. their hands to like for everything in it except actually mixing it. Then yes, then you pull up out. a utensil and waste the utensil for no reason. I'm straining my voice right now cuz I'm so angry. I just I'm frustrated. We need to stop it. I'm tired. I don't want to see it shared just as a joke anymore. I I mean, I partake partook in that i 100 percent was one of those people who shared it and went like why why like for why why are we here (laughs) just stop like whoever's recording at some point you got to be like this isn't cool and stop the like oh my god no i'm gonna slap you and your mama because you're dumb like mm, anger anger (laughs) if i ever see any food end up on any countertop that you are around, I will literally backhand you because <laughs> that is disgusting. <laughs> so angry. Well, that's our show. The countertop was pink. It wasn't even white anymore because the sauce had literally sat long enough that it started to change the color of the white countertop. Oh, let me just use my hands to, to mix that all together. And the nachos look like liquid diarrhea. And then she crunched the nacho chips in. Mm, mm, mm. I'm so angry. Well, that's our show. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And we're dangerously likely to see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>